Well, thanks for inviting me to be here today at the DEU and to speak to you on this fascinating subject that I've been asked to uh, speak about, which is pleasing the impassable God. Let me ask you, if, uh, if God followed you on social media, what would he make of your posts? Which ones would he like? Which would he frown at? Would he retweet or share some of your contributions? Uh, or would he maybe make a comment on them, as many other people feel free to do? You know, sometimes uh, social media pops up and tells me that uh, one or maybe 23 of my friends um, have also liked X, another account or a particular product or something like that. You know how it works, the kind of thing. Uh, so it says Dave Ruddick likes Nottingham Forest or Dave Ruddick is listening to Awesome Cutlery. Something like that. And the implication is, is clear, isn't it, with those sorts of things? Would I care to do the same? Would I like to press this button uh, if I would like to also follow those same things? Or, uh, no thanks, I'd rather not uh, follow Nottingham Forest. Thank you very much. I stopped supporting them when Trevor Francis left them and I moved to, uh, to Old Trafford as a teenager. Sometimes uh, Twitter tells me that uh, several people I follow have also started following X, another person. And that can be quite revealing. I don't know if you found that. Uh, it can raise an eyebrow or two. Oh, I didn't realise that, uh, that they were into that. Or so-and-so has commented about Dominic Cummings or President Trump or something like that. Would I like to do the same? That's the implication. Uh, well, no, thanks. I think I'll stay out of that one. Thank you very much. What if, what if Facebook notified me of one of the things that God had liked today? What if it did that? What if it told me what God had commented on today? What would I actually do with that kind of data? Now, look, I'm not trying to scare you into conducting some sort of uh, audit of godliness on your social media account. So um, it's not always a bad idea to do that and see how your interaction on social media is. Um, rather, I want to get us thinking about this more basic issue. Does God like or dislike the things that we say and do? And if so, how can we tell? How do we know? Short of him actually opening a Facebook account or an Instagram account or something, is there a way for us to know what he likes and dislikes, how he views things? Or are we left to guess and speculate using our own Im imaginations, our own ideas? You know, I think God will like this or I'm not sure that God would like that very much. Of course, the answer we know as evangelicals is to be found in God-breathed scripture. Um, as Martin Luther rightly said, it is not man's business to determine what pleases God. It is the business of God alone. And he has let us know what he likes and dislikes, not exhaustively perhaps, but sufficiently in scripture. There are several different ways in which God's word speaks of his approval of something. He says that someone finds favour with him or that something gives him pleasure 
or he delights in something. Something makes him happy. The Bible uh, talks about how something can be good in God's eyes or acceptable to him or pleasing. It also, of course, tells us what he finds loathsome or an abomination and the various things that God hates or finds to be a stench in his nostrils, as it's sometimes put. You know, on uh, Facebook, we have that thumbs up uh, and the thumbs down reactions. And now, of course, we have the hug on Facebook as well. And there's a heart on uh, on Twitter to express our feelings about a, a post that somebody has made. God uses different words and phrases to express the things he likes and dislikes in Scripture. Not just a, a crying emoji or an angry face. He is much more subtle and clear. I've been uh, noticing and studying and collecting up these places in scripture which talk about this subject for many years. I've preached on them and now I'm actually writing a book on them. In days gone by, the idea of studying particular words in the Bible was very popular. Many sermons and books were, were just word studies, like extended dictionary articles with application tagged on. That's not my intention at all in, in this book. There were certain dangers associated with that approach to the Bible, which led to it being abandoned in many parts of the church. You know the kind of thing I mean. Often a word would be defined without paying much attention to the context in which it was used, or it was just assumed that a word meant the same thing in one place as it did in another, when that was not necessarily the case. Bible words were given English dictionary meanings, that is the meanings they have in the English of the day when the writer was talking about it, rather than the meanings that they might have had in the Bible itself. These are the sorts of errors and difficulties associated with that approach to word studies. But we mustn't be uh, so cautious of the potential mistakes that we could make that we altogether neglect studying God's actual words. Otherwise, you know, we would never actually open the Bible and start reading for fear that we might make a mistake. Every word of God is flawless, says Proverbs 30, verse 5. So we can suck on every last one and all of them in their splendidly rich variety, and they will not ultimately lead us astray. My book's going to try and unpack this whole concept and theme of pleasing God. Not just one particular word for pleasing, uh, as that turns up in random places throughout the Bible. Naturally, I'm going to want to pay attention to the context as much as possible within the constraints of a, of a short book. This is not going to be what is sometimes called systematic theology as such. It's more really what's called biblical theology. That is, I'm trying to discover the theology of pleasing God as it's presented in the Bible, paying due attention to the context and the place in God's history and plan of redemption. Part of all that, of course, has to be acknowledging that there is a shift of some kind from the Old Testament 
to the New Testament. There is progression in God's revelation of God uh, in the Bible so that we do know more about what pleases him at the end than we do at the beginning. Plus, we have Jesus in the middle, so to speak, who shows us the way more perfectly and sends his spirit to help us please God. These are all vitally important things to take note of when we're trying to work out what makes God happy. We can't just lift things from uh, the Old Testament straight out of the Old Testament and apply them directly to us today without thinking whether there might be something significant that has changed for us in the meantime. So, you know, we might come across a passage in the Old Testament which says uh, God is pleased when people sacrifice bulls and goats or when uh, people keep the Sabbath. We can't just lift those texts straight out of the Old Testament and say God is still pleased with animal sacrifices or when people keep the Saturday Sabbath. The meaning of both Sabbaths and special days today has to take account of the radical change brought to the whole Old Testament system by Jesus. God hasn't changed, of course, because he always plans to teach us and to lead us in a different way after Christ than before. That's his unchanging plan to do that. So, you know, God's people uh, used to be not allowed to eat shellfish or pork. If you look at the dietary laws in the book of Leviticus, for example, but Jesus declared all foods clean for us in Mark chapter seven. Yet in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, certain things also remain the same, of course. He didn't declare all sexual practices clean, of course, as we know. Thinking further then about pleasing God, this leads us to some tricky questions which might actually lead us into systematic theology areas. For example, the whole idea of divine emotions and divine language. I've only just realised really after many years of thinking about this theme of pleasing God that I need to look at those doctrinal things as well before the book that I'm writing starts to dig into particular texts and teaching on the subject of pleasing God. Why do I need to do that? Well, because I don't want to draw false conclusions from what I find in individual texts. I've realised it, it would be far too easy to simply take one verse out of a passage of scripture and expound it without properly putting it into the context of the Bible's revelation of God as a whole. It's too easy for me to do that. You know how easy it is to get the wrong impression about somebody when we do that, about one particular aspect or thing that they've said or done. You know, Dave Ruddick, for example, is uh, is more than just a person who likes posh shirts shops on Facebook and the Lego Batman movie, for example. Uh, that isn't, I assume, the most important thing that there is to know about him or the absolute truth which defines his very inner being. Those little revelations that we might pick up that he might uh, give us uh, on Facebook or whatever 
need to be put into a bigger context or I will not actually know the truth about him at all. I mean, who knows? Those things may be originally intended as some sort of ironic joke. I don't know. And it's the same way, I think, with God and the revelation of his character in the Bible. Each revelation needs to be understood in the context of the whole and not interpreted so that one part contradicts another. That's a good Anglican hermeneutic, by the way, of course, from Article 20 of the 39 Articles. No part of scripture can be interpreted so as to be repugnant to another. Now, thinking about pleasing God, then, let's apply that thought to the biblical theme as it emerges in various parts of scripture. We chase after certain things, don't we, because we think that they will make us happy. So what do we want? We want knowledge, we want power, wealth, respect, fame, relationships. These things fuel our ambitions and give us pleasure. But does God need any of those things? Does he seek after such pleasure? I mean, God knows everything. He governs the whole universe. He has the power. Uh, He's completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need us for anything, as uh, Psalm 50, for example, would make very clear. God is uh, at peace with himself and utterly content. He is indeed the essence of happiness, as the uh, early Christian writer Boethius once put it many centuries ago. God is the essence of happiness. Anything that could possibly make one happy pre-exists wholly and in a more eminent degree in God, said the medieval uh, theologian Thomas Aquinas, as he contrasted God's happiness with our happiness. So anything that could make somebody happy pre-exists wholly and in a more eminent degree in God than it does in us. So when scripture talks about us displeasing God, he's not wanting um, us or, or sort of waiting around on us to make him feel fulfilled and happy. That's not how it works. It's not as if what we do can actually cause God harm and drag him down or something like that. He is not anxiously waiting on our every word, desperately wanting us to make him happy. Otherwise, you know, God will be sad and lonely and incomplete. He doesn't have those sorts of passions which make him vulnerable to manipulation by his creation, us. Of course, Article 1 in the 39 Articles tells us that. Anglicanism starts by affirming classical Christian doctrine about God. He is without body, parts or passions like that. So when the Bible says that something we do pleases God, We know then from the Bible as a whole that it's not saying God changes his facial expression 
from frowny face to smiley face every time he assesses our thoughts and words and deeds. God is not clicking a series of thumbs up or thumbs down emojis to express his feelings about our actions every second of every day. His thoughts are not our thoughts and he dwells in inapproachable light, unharmed and not susceptible to emotional blackmail or control. So the language of pleasing or displeasing God, it's metaphorical language, isn't it? It is communication designed to convey something real, but utterly sublime to us mere mortals. He speaks in such a way that we can grasp it. It's accommodated to our human understanding. And as he communicates to us in this clear and beautiful way, God is not revealing absolutely everything about his inner being. He's telling us something true, but in such a way that our mortal capacity can handle it. As the early church uh, theologian Dionysius put it, we cannot be enlightened by the divine rays except they be hidden within the covering of many sacred veils. That is why scripture expounds spiritual truths using figures of speech, including this somewhat paradoxical idea of pleasing the already infinitely happy God. It takes something that we're familiar with from our everyday relational life and uses it to convey something about God that is useful and joyful for us to know about him. God's word tailors its language to our capacity to understand and it's phrased for our spiritual advantage. So when God speaks to us, it is not in full-blown, raw, concentrated majesty, because we would hardly be able to bear that if we did experience it. When there was something even approaching that in uh, uh, at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, it was frightening. And the people actually begged Moses not to let it happen again. Instead, God considers our finite human capacity and the benefits that he wishes to convey to us, and he communicates in an appropriate way. As the Reformation writer John Calvin puts it, for who, even of slight intelligence, does not understand that as nurses commonly do with infants, God is accustomed in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like as accommodate the knowledge of him to our slight capacity. To do this, God must descend far beneath his loftiness. Now, uh, technically, this idea of God expressing his feelings in human clothing is called anthropopathism. Anthropopathism, that is ascribing human emotions to God, just as, of course, anthropomorphism is ascribing human shape to God. 
Now, try using those words in their Scrabble sometime, anthropopathism, anthropomorphism. We know from the Bible as a whole that God is a spirit. Jesus says that in uh, John chapter four. And so he literally does not have hands and eyes and ears or feathers and wings, despite the Bible actually talking about us being in the shadow of his wings in Psalm 36, Psalm 91, or of uh, God rolling up his sleeves to bear his holy arm uh, in Psalm 98 or Isaiah 52. God doesn't literally have eyes or feathers or arm in that way. So in the same way, we must be careful not to press the language of divine emotion or pleasure too much and too far beyond its biblical purpose. Otherwise, we may end up with a misshapen understanding of God's inner being. And we don't want that. So we mustn't reduce God's ineffable being to our very effable and fallible level. God's emotional life is infinitely rich and far more complex than ours in a way that we can only begin to understand and comprehend. Deep study of God's self-revelation in scripture is the best way for us to make a start on this, but we will still be meditating on it thousands and thousands and thousands of years into eternity. He is an inexhaustible fountain of wonder and goodness. Now, as all parents know, uh, bringing up children can be a tiring and a frustrating business. I've got three children uh, and I can tell you it is a tiring and often frustrating business. It often leaves us exhausted and sometimes, yes, a bit moody. When I'm uh, when I'm rested and calm, I can be quite cheerful and uh, generous to my kids. Uh, but later in the day, when they've been arguing with each other or with me or eating all the food in my fridge, maybe not so much. Maybe I don't feel quite as generous or kind towards them. But, you know, God is not like me in that regard. In himself, God does not change. Malachi chapter three, verse six says, I, the Lord, do not change. James chapter one, verse 17, says that with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is steady. God is calm, unlike people who change and vary depending on how much sleep they've had or how well fed they are and a thousand, thousand other variables. Even Balaam could see this as you look it up in uh, Numbers chapter 23, what Balaam says about God not changing. God is immutable, to use the technical phrase. He is immutable and unchangeable in his purpose and he is constant in his character. The world changes and even the heavens, but God remains the same and his years have no end, as Psalm 102 tells us. So God is, how can we put it, he's not vulnerable to bouts of unhappiness, despair or depression 
because we've been naughty or cruel or unfaithful. That, of course, is why our salvation is not vulnerable or fragile either, because God isn't suddenly going to change his mind about us because of something that we do that makes him feel bad or sad or mad. No, God isn't moody like that. And that is the guarantee of my salvation. So when his word tells us that we please God by a certain thing or that he delights in us, the idea of that is that somehow what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking, we ourselves resonate with the harmony of God himself. Or it's telling us that he will react in a similar way to how we react when we feel such emotions as pleasure or disgust. It's it's analogy, not literalism. Again, uh, as Calvin so helpfully puts it, although he, God, is beyond all disturbance of mind, yet he testifies that he is angry towards sinners. <clears throat> Therefore, whenever we hear or read that God is angered, we ought not to imagine, imagine any emotion in him, but rather to consider that this expression has been taken from our own human experience because God, whenever he is exercising judgment, exhibits the appearance of one kindled or angered. So think about this um, for a particular example. Think about um, when we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit by our bitter interactions with each other. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. This is accommodated language. It is metaphorical language designed to teach us something, but not to be pushed too far so that we imagine somehow the Holy Spirit is curled up in a ball all the time with agonising grief and sadness because of our behaviour. No, it means that the Spirit's reaction to that unkind behaviour is akin to our human emotion of grief. What that means within God's own being must be something far deeper and sharper and more ineffable than can otherwise be expressed. Now, you know, when when I'm saddened or angered by people's words, particularly on social media, perhaps, I can unfollow or unfriend those people or even apparently you can block them altogether if you want to. So, says uh, Thomas Aquinas, this text, Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Aquinas says this text does not mean that God is susceptible to outbursts of passion in reaction to our sins. He says, When some person is saddened, he withdraws from whoever is depressing him. Likewise, does the Holy Spirit withdraw from one who is sinning. Thus, the meaning of do not grieve the Holy Spirit is do not chase him away or reject him through sin. So this kind of language, it's not about 
protecting God the Holy Spirit's fragile mood, he is not one of those immoral, fickle and ever changeable Greek gods from the, you know, the surrounding world of the New Testament. In some way, this language is about doing what is best for ourselves because grieving God will not be good for us. Interesting, isn't it, to see uh, Thomas Aquinas reflecting on this theologically in the very act of interpreting Ephesians, because that quote I just gave you is from his commentary on Ephesians. <clears throat> they knew in those days that you can't abstract a single text from the revelation of God as a whole or ignore proper systematic theology when you're trying to do exegesis. Otherwise, we end up spouting heresy or preaching a God made in our own image. Scripture itself forces us, it makes us ask these sorts of questions. It isn't some outside influence like Greek philosophy or something, as some people have falsely alleged. On the other hand, in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, God literally does have human form and human emotions. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was perfectly capable of expressing his displeasure. It was clear when he was pleased or when he was angered or when something upset him. In Christ, we can see something, something of God's emotional life, literally incarnated, made flesh. Jesus wept. Jesus whipped. Jesus was exasperated. Again, the idea is that if Jesus is pleased with you, that's good for you. If he's not, then it would be better for you if you changed your ways. So in the Gospels, uh, Jesus isn't simply showing us in his reactions to things that he's a touchy-feely guy in, uh, in tune with his emotions and his inner feelings. Now, Jesus's emotions teach us something about what we should care about, too, or what we should watch out for. So these are the kind of things that we need to be aware of and keep in the back of our minds as we explore what the Bible says about any theme, especially the theme of pleasing God. We need to remember the nature of God, who he is from his revelation of himself to us as a whole. We also need to remember the nature of his word to us. It's lisping, but clear and trustworthy um, nature, its quality. These theological truths will keep us anchored as we unwrap the various colourful and powerful ways that scripture preaches to us in individual texts. But it will also help us to remember, as Article 20 puts it, that it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. That is a vital truth in all our preaching, in all our pastoring and in all our politics. Thanks for listening. I look forward to 
our conversation and discussion of these points together.